0: In fact, I remember I went to my graduate student advisor who was Larry Lau, a famous econometrician in Stanford. And I said, okay, I want to do my thesis in econometrics and you're an econometrician. So tell me something about what I should do. So he told me that there are two types of econometricians. There are those who get their hands dirty with real um, data. And then, then there are the more prestigious types. He mentioned Takeshi Amemiya who was At Stanford at that time, that they only do theory. They never actually uh, study real data. And these are the ones who have prestige and status. So I said, why should I, uh, why shouldn't I go for prestige and status? So I decided to do, and I did my uh, PhD thesis and a theoretical problem, which much later I learned is completely useless.
1: Welcome to Activist NMT, a podcast about nonviolent MMT direct activism, introducing modern monetary theory to the world and conversations about learning MMT together. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Pakistani PhD economist Asad Zaman. Professor Zaman arrived in the United States in 1971 at the age of 16 to pursue a master's and then doctorate in economics and econometrics starting at MIT in Boston. Five years later, in addition to earning his doctorate, he realized his personal life was a mess poisoned by the individualism promoted by the West that says a primary goal in life is nothing more than to maximize one's own pleasure. He worked through this crisis, but it would take him another 25 years to realize, have, and finally resolve another major crisis in economics. In 1996, Professor Zaman published a highly advanced textbook on econometrics after working on it for 10 years. The book received accolades and is still used as a reference in university classrooms around the world. One of the important things he realized while writing his textbook, however, was the vast gulf between those who get their hands dirty with real world data and those who earn prestige and status by developing theory. Because the two sides never communicate, the theory becomes progressively more unrealistic. This is called the theory-practice divide. In fact, only a few years after being published, he realized that it, and indeed everything his entire academic career was based upon, was fatally flawed. Professor Zaman talks about the many incorrect and insidious concepts underlying mainstream economics, first and foremost being the idea of logical positivism, which he calls one of the most poisonous philosophies ever developed by human beings. Logical positivism says that if something cannot be externally observed and measured, it must be discarded, not just from economics but one's life in general. It means that our internal realities of thoughts, emotions, and spirituality are not important because they cannot obviously be witnessed or measured by others or with instruments. Here is a haunting quote from Professor Zaman's autobiography, which comes from the book Modernity and the Holocaust by Zygmunt Bauman. It was not illiterate savages, but graduates of the finest educational systems of the West who designed the gas chambers used to burn millions of innocent men, women, and children in Germany. The philosophies of logical positivism, combined with those of individualism and binary logic, the teachings of Kant and Hume and others, is substantially why man can do the evil that he does. We are taught that we must do what's best for us alone. We can only trust what can be reduced to maths and models, and we must also ignore our own inner emotions and spirituality. How could this lead to anything but disaster? We have cut ourselves off from the only signals that can truly guide us and know nothing about those who we harm, or that they even exist, at all. Most unfortunately, the deep flaws of mainstream economics are not accidental. They're in service of keeping the rich rich and the poor poor. Especially in the US, daring to challenge or question these things results in brutal suppression. Professor Zaman says he may never have realized these things had he not taken his family to Turkey for six years. Being out of the United States, especially in a less advanced and wealthy country, allowed him to study other subjects and schools of thought and also to take a look at the mainstream economics of the West from the outside. His life is now dedicated to educating others on real world economics, which includes Islamic economics and MMT. Finally, in the show notes, you will find links to some of Professor Zaman's prolific body of work. This includes his 2020 paper on models. As we discuss his full video course on modern money theory, and his six-part series describing the economics of his home country and how MMT can apply to it. The MMT course has an hour-long segment on most of the chapters in the MMT textbook. This is part one of a two-part episode. Enjoy. You can contact me on Twitter or Facebook, and you can email me at activistmmt@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you're enjoying Activist MMT even a fraction as much as I enjoy creating it, and if you're safe and secure and happen to be lucky enough to have some public deficit kicking around in your pocket, I hope you might consider becoming a monthly patron of Activist MMT. For as little as a dollar a month. You'll get exclusive content and updates, several days of early access to every episode, and for some, super early access, weeks and sometimes even months in advance. You can start by going to patreon.com slash activistmmt. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Whatever you can afford, I would be very grateful. Thank you. Now, on to our conversation. Um, so how are you? How are you? Are things up in, where are you again? I want to say Massachusetts, but I'm yeah, not sure Yeah, actually right.
0: I'm, I'm in uh, Boston with my daughter. You're in Boston with what? With my daughter who is at, um, Howard Medical School. as a doing a fellowship in some
1: oh.
0: um, pediatric urology.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Are you teaching right now?
0: No, actually I'm retired, but I'm working on lectures on, uh, Number of different topics preparing I, online lectures
1: i you seem to be putting out a, a a ton of content with videos and you just released two papers recently and you seem to you seem to be very active even if you are retired.
0: Yes, that is true. I am busy twenty four seven and uh, the number of things that need to be done are so large that I don't see enough years left in my life to be able to do that
1: well. Hopefully someone else will take up the reins.
0: Yes, yes. That's my hope.
1: Yes. Um, uh, okay, great. Well, I'm, I'm actually, uh, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I wish I found out about you sooner because I would have done a lot more research because you are, I mean, prolific in your <laughs> writing and your books and your videos. And it's, I mean, <laughs> there's not enough time in the day to go through. yes. At you know, <laughs> some point, my
0: brother told me that you're writing faster than people can read
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's actually not a bad way of saying it um uh so i saw your uh, interview at the top of your about me page and i i found it rather upsetting because <laughs> you were touching on some really important subjects and i don't know if you know i i have no idea if it was intentional or if it was just a personality quirk or it was whatever but whatever the case was, he stopped you from talking about very important things. You touched on the subject; he would not ask any follow-up questions. He switched subjects to something
0: completely
1: and I unrelated. I think he was
0: after personality and not after economics at all. And he was uh, his audience was very, uh, very much a lay public, uninformed, and he was interested in introducing me as a person and not me as an economist. So, I think that's okay. why he did not pursue the leads that I. Uh, can- okay.
1: Well then that's good. So I, uh, so it's not an intentional thing, but I still, I still was like wanting to hear more about that. Right. So I would like to give you the second hour to, to, just go, I would like the nature of what you see this revolution being. And you know, the, really the consequences of that, because this is not just, this is not just teaching people. This is really wresting power from, you know, the elite. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So, um, so if that sounds good, then, uh, great i guess yeah let's get started um so thank you so much for coming on Uh, you i discovered you through your mmt chapter lessons yes uh with the book so if you wouldn't mind please introduce yourself and i trust that you know what you want to say so sorry it. (laughs)
0: um i was um young and naive student who arrived on the shores of Boston where I am today uh, to study at MIT with the understanding that all wisdom lay in these hallowed halls of MIT and uh, Harvard and um, I was just a blank sponge eager and ready to take whatever they had to offer and so I spent about three years at MIT uh, getting my bachelor's. Uh, I was 16 when I started, 19 when I finished. Then I did a PhD from Stanford. That was also in three years in economics. So um, I was uh, pretty much ready that um, to, to le- take the wisdom, but as I learned more and more, I became more and more dissatisfied. And uh, not immediately, but eventually I came to the realization that nearly everything that I had been taught was uh, wrong and harmful. And so there used to be a song at that time, uh, which was very popular that when I think back on all the crap I learned in high school, it's a wonder I can think at all. And this is really true that anybody who has uh, gone through a typical Western education is basically unable to think. And this is not uh, accidental. One of the very insightful things that Karl Marx said is that capitalism does not work by exploiting workers against their will. It makes the laborers uh, willing and eager accomplices in their own exploitation. So this is the thing that the education system is designed to convert us from human beings into human resources. So our education does not uh, develop our personalities except by standardizing and packaging them. I saw uh, much later, I saw a sign in, uh, in an ancient Turkish madrasa which says that here we don't fi- teach fish to fly and here we don't teach uh, birds to swim. So nobody ever asked me whether I was a fish or a bird and yeah. uh, what were the latent capabilities in me. So uh, this uh, kind of a discussion can be very ambiguous and amorphous. So if you want to crystallize it, it's uh, Polanyi has done a great job And uh, in terms of The Great Transformation, I think that's one of the landmark landmark books in my own uh, understanding of capitalism. What book is that? The Great Transformation, uh, political and uh, economic origins of our times. So among the many brilliant insights in the book, uh, he says that there are three things which happened which enabled capitalism to come into existence. And these three things were the introduction of three artificial commodities, things which are not truly commodities, but they had to become commodities in order for capitalism to function. And one of these was labor. Uh, Human beings had to be saleable in the market as an input into the, the production process. Another one of these was money. That has a lot to do with the modern monetary theory, and the third thing was land. That has a lot to do with the environmental crisis. The land that is not something for sale. It. Uh, I mean, this was a change from the Mother Earth concept, where we have a, a mutually um, su- supportive relationship with our um, with the land that we live on. It uh, it feeds us, and it. Uh, Houses that and it provides for us, and in return, we should care for it. But all of this uh, changes when you switch to a market mentality, where when you look at the amazing forest, all you see is the timber that you can sell for furniture, and you don't see the beautiful and complex ecosystem built over uh, millions of years. So, one of the things, see, this I'm talking philosophy, but this has a lot to do with the personal crisis that you talked about. That, since uh, college education doesn't is basically the process of turning people into machines. At some point, I realized that the bargain that I was being offered was was not good. I was um, basically drained of um, all spiritual energy, and uh, I didn't feel good. And I realized that. See, economics is actually a religion, although it doesn't claim to be. Why a religion? Well, it says that, it tells us what is the purpose of life. It says that your purpose in life is to maximize your utility, maximize the pleasure that you get from eating and drinking. So um, that's, that's the goal of life. So I, I actually absorbed this insight and said, okay, so I what I need to do is to try to maximize the pleasure I get but this is a very trivial and shallow goal, and it really uh, drains your uh, uh, personality very well. So, But, but it has uh, become part of the common culture. So eventually I re- realized that this is not what life is all about. And I became very uh, disenchanted with the philosophy of life that I was following, but I didn't know any alternatives. So there came a point when I the simon and Garfunkel songs that i have come to doubt all that i once held was true this line haunted me and yes because this was the case that things that i had uh, believed in very firmly found i found that they didn't hold water and i didn't know what else to believe so since then life has been a very long journey but what i have learned is that knowledge is not what I was taught it is at MIT and Stanford. See, in, in, um, at MIT and Stanford, they didn't teach me epistemology, the theory of knowledge. They did it in an apprentice way, by learning by doing. I was given courses in physics and chemistry and biology and history and even um, philosophy. But there was no course which encouraged me to explore my insides, who I am, what I can be, what are the potentials within me, How the question of how should I live this life, what is the best that I can be, these are questions which never came up in uh, the whole education. And these are the most important questions that every human being faces in his life. How should I spend this life? I have only one a brief moment, a few moments to dance on this earth. So how should I do that? And I think that relates
1: actually, uh, in addition, it's how should you apply the knowledge that you are being taught?
0: Yes, that is true. How how, how does it apply to my life? That's the question, uh, which which is not answered. What, what they do is, yes, here is um, chemistry and biology, and this is what you can do to manufacture uh, weapons, and this is what you can do to get a job, but... Uh, what your life should be like and how you can uh, how you can change yourself this these are not questions which are um, part of uh, standard education at all and this is not uh, this is not something that is uh, old actually this is a new development in Western education. there is a book by Julie R- Rubin called uh, the Making of the Modern University Intellectual Transformation and uh, the marginalization of morality, which explains how this change took place. So in the early part of the 20th century, college catalogs said that our goal is to build character, to provide leadership skills, to develop a sense of civic responsibility, and all of these things which are no longer part of any college uh, catalog or education. So this there was a change and it took place due to certain reasons. The most important among them was the development of this philosophy of logical positivism, which is the most poisonous philosophy ever developed by human beings. And it poisoned me completely and took me years and years to undo the damage done by this philosophy which imbi which I imbibed unconsciously. It was never actually taught to me as a philosophy, it just was part of the framework with the, which used to think.
1: Logical positivism? What, what, what was that?
0: Yes, logical positivism. Logical positivism was a philosophy which developed in the early 20th century. And this has shaped how we think about uh, everything, actually. It basically defines knowledge as being knowledge of the, ex- objective knowledge of the external world only. It rules out the possibility of knowledge of internal states of mind and heart and spirit as being knowledge because these are not observable. So basically it says, logical positivism says that science is the only source of knowledge and science is always external objective verifiable. So now it if i can be reduced to sad, models. Yeah, this has to do with, yes, models also. Um, but but I'm saying that that
1: that is science because it can be re- those things can be reduced to maths and models, which is why they consider it real. If it can't be reduced to maths and models, then it's not considered real.
0: Yes, that's right. Well, real uh, in this particular case, uh, and what I'm talking, about, it refers to external reality. But our internal um, lives are also just as real to us as the external reality, but they are ignored and discarded and uh, and uh, neglected in the uh, modern education systems. And this is how we are prepared to sell ourselves for a small amount of, for a handful of change, to sell our lives to the capitalists so that they can make profits from us.
1: Right, uh, and there is a line in your uh, autobiography, which I'll put a link to in the, in the show notes, um, it was not illiterate savages but graduates of the finest educational systems of the west who designed the gas chambers used to burn millions of innocent men women and children in germany and and the not learning about yourself you know these important questions of who are you and what is life about and what do you want to do and and the learning about others you know that's the context in which you are going to apply your knowledge but if you're not taught that context then that then that is the kind of evil that can be created because since you don't know about these other people you haven't you know you haven't learned how to reach out to to f- see the suffering of others or the existence of others that's how this these horrors are made possible
0: exactly i agree with that yes so um Yeah, that line is from, I think, a book called Modernity and the Holocaust. A very beautiful book, which explains how it wasn't, you know, um, basically people have tried to explain it away as being the aberration of a few uh, lunatics. But people who have studied in detail have said, no, these were all normal people doing normal things and uh, they were just rational human beings who were weighed two alternatives and found one of them was of greater utility than the other one. That's all. And that's what rational calculation teaches us. Ignore the heart and do the calculations. And actually, I think, that's, I think that actually
1: you know, people maximize their pleasure. And yet we have suicide and addiction in our corrupt society. That is maximizing pleasure, is suicide. <laughs> And addiction.
0: Yes, when when you become, uh, life becomes unbearably lonely and uh, you feel, you see basically the most important lesson that we all need to learn is that human beings are infinitely precious. They cannot be bought and sold for money. Our lives are beyond price and a market exactly tries to teach us the opposite, that no human beings and human lives can be bought and sold for money. And once you believe that, then you have then you have abandoned the game. But once you understand that my life is infinitely precious, every moment is new. See I had to I had to detoxify myself and I thought about all of the all of the core lessons that I had been taught. And I said, what if this was not true? It was very even hard to conceive of how it could not be true because these lessons had been drilled into me so strongly that um, I had to uh, work hard at imagining the possibility of its failure. So one of the very strong uh, lessons that we have learned is Newtonian physics, that the world is more or less deterministic and uh, the laws of physics determine what happens next. Even though quantum has really broken up all that, but nobody knows about quantum and it's, uh, it has not impacted on our world view. Our worldview is very strongly Newtonian and mechanistic. So I said, what if the opposite is true, that, that the world is completely non-deterministic? What would that be like? What would it mean for me in my life? So these are uh, some of the things that I had to start to think after I uh, I realized that the education I had received was actually very damaging. And I had to learn how to live on my own for myself, which is not a good thing in the sense that there's a huge amount of wisdom, ancient wisdom from Aristotle and Plato and thousands of centuries, which has all been discarded and buried and uh uh, and put it aside because logical positivists said that this is not knowledge. It started all with David Hume who said that take a book, any book, and examine it. Does it concern cons- uh, Does it have arguments of number and logic? Does it contain experimental facts? If not, then just burn it because it's completely uh, useless, meaningless. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, So all books of philosophy and literature and and art and um, and um, higher uh, speculation about meaning of life. These are all just books to be burnt because they, are, uh, they don't contain facts of science. But that was the framework in which I was educated. And so to get rid of this, I had to say, all right, imagine a non-Newtonian world, a world in which we are free. So here is a thought experiment, which I would invite you to, Do for yourself. And I would invite all listeners to undertake. Suppose that. So, you see, science teaches us to look for patterns. Yeah. If I'm faced with a situation, I look at the past to see similar situations and to take lessons from that and to apply them to decision making in the now. But suppose all of this is wrong. Suppose that every moment is unique. Suppose that this moment in my life has never occurred before, and this is certainly true, and will never occur again. Now, nothing that happened in the past is applicable. There are doors of opportunity that are open in front of me that were never open before and will never open again. So how am I to evaluate? Experience doesn't mean anything because experience can actually be harmful. In fact, experience is harmful in the sense that if I think about patterns of things which have happened in the past, then uh, this will automatically prevent me from seeing unique opportunities which never existed in the past. So experience and uh, thinking about the past and thinking about scientific ways of knowledge is actually harmful. Another um, thing that you can say is that, okay, what is who am I? What is my personality like? So I can analyze the actions that I have taken in the past and use that to analyze myself. But that goes against my basic freedom. I can reject everything that I have been up to now and choose a different life for myself from this moment onwards. So all of these are ideas that we need to ponder just to break away from the iron cast that has been placed around us and uh, chains that have been placed around our thoughts to prevent us from realizing our true freedom and our humanity and our identity. So this is the great damage that is done by an education which tra- takes a human being and turns him or her into a human resource. And that wow. is what happened to me and took me decades to recover.
1: So, okay, so so if you wouldn't mind, so can you, sh- well, number one, can you give an idea of the the years over which this happened like the timeline of what like you were you had an education starting you know pretty early in 1971 when i believe you were 16 right and like how many years did you go just diving into what you would now call i guess flawed education a, a not a not good education negative education mm-hmm. and then how did the realization start to
0: well right All right. so you see basically when i came uh, in 1971 to the USA, I was also just as dazzled by the image of America as the leader of the world as everybody else was. It was charming and it was beautiful. And actually, the surface was actually very beautiful. People were very friendly and helpful and, and warm and kind and courteous. I was just um, fell in love with America and I was ready to accept. So uh, whatever training I, I would receive. So one of the trainings that I received, which was very strong was individualism. Everyone gets to do whatever they like to do. They should not care about others. That is actually a limitation on your freedom. So uh, part of being an individual is that I am I, and you are you. And if by chance we find each other, it is beautiful. And if not, it can't be helped. Meaning that I shouldn't do anything to try to, uh, to go out, to uh, go out of my way to please you and vice versa. That's, that's actually being false to ourselves. This, this kind of attitude is what eventually led to the uh, massive increases in uh, divorce rates that we see. And, um, basically life, social life is all about compromises. And if you don't want to make compromises, then you live alone. And that's what's happening. Everybody lives all alone because um, nobody is willing to make any sort of compromise to live with others. Uh, I think it has even been forgotten. So anyway, I followed this philosophy of individualism seeking pleasure. And I found that there was not much pleasure to be had. I mean, you have food and you have certain other uh, pleasures which we won't mention. But after a while, they, they become stale. They, you say, okay, I, I, now I have done it. And um, is there any more? Uh, you can uh, look up books to see if I'm missing something because it doesn't seem to do for me what I, uh what everybody else uh, says that it does for them. But eventually you find out that it's all fake. I mean, you have maximum number of uh, suicides at the holidays, like Christmas, etc. Because the appearance of um, uh, social happiness is the maximum. So, so the people who are living lonely n- lives feel the maximum deprivation because they look at the apparent beauty of the lives uh, much more directly and then they find themselves to be very deprived in comparison. But this is just an illusion. My best friend at MIT, Paul Kinney, uh, eventually committed suicide because Mm -hmm. um, his parents were divorced and there was nobody who cared for him actually. And so this is the kind of society where, and, and this is actually the, when you talk about personal crisis, this is what happened to me. For three years at MIT, I was quite happy. And then um, I got into uh, the PhD program in Stanford. I was also very happy. But after a while, a year and two, I realized that this life philosophy that I was pursuing was just not giving me anything at all. I mean, I was becoming spiritually drained and I wasn't getting what I was supposed to be getting, and so eventually I was in California, as a great place to explore. So I started. Uh, so I, I came to the realization: this is not working, and I said, "I need to find a new philosophy of life." I don't know what that would be, but California was a great place to explore. They had um, all sorts of things. They had encounter groups and uh, Zen Buddhism and this and that and the other. I can't even name. And so I did a lot of exploring to see. Um, so that was, Yanni, you know, if you're talking about timeline, so I would say that about five years after I got to the USA, I started to look for new ways of thinking about life, new ways about thinking about how to be a human being, what it means, what, what life, uh, what should I pursue with my life, etc., Fortunately, I was Yanni, set on more or less out, autopilot with respect to academics. Otherwise, I know many people who went through this type of life crisis where they, it suddenly seemed to them that all of the study that they are doing is completely meaningless, and then they just drop out of PhD or are una- unable to complete simply because they lack the motivation. Uh, it's just uh, It's just a huge amount of work. And you say, well, it's all meaningless garbage. Why should I do it? And then, then you can't complete it. Fortunately, I wasn't one of those. I, I managed to finish my thesis uh, without losing motivation. And uh, even though I was beginning to think that some this, there's something fishy in here, but actually I didn't um, start suspecting that economics is wrong, uh, but just that I'm missing very important dimensions in my life, so
1: um, that was a ne- that was a necessary prerequisite to understanding that economics was wrong. Yeah, that, that is that, that's
0: that is true. That is true.
1: Uh, let me ask you a question. Uh, how how did your friend's suicide fit into your? Did that like have a part that didn't happen in your crisis? Actually,
0: I was in touch with Paul Kinney over uh, long years, and his suicide happened only uh, much much later. So it didn't um, have any direct impact on me at uh, any but i i saw his life from a distance i saw he, that he was rejected by his father and by his mother and um he was in pain and he developed some psychological problems and i was his only friend uh, i was very surprised that you have a, because i come from a society culture where you have extended families and lots of friends and this sort of, uh, but but in this culture you have, you don't have that. So anyway, so I I did see his life up close and actually in some ways it was similar to mine. But he did not have the cultural resources to explore alternatives. I mean, in some sense, I would say that MIT failed him miserably in the sense that the education that he had been given, Um, he was also very young, he was 18 when he came to MIT. It could have, uh, they could have told him something more about life and living and um, buffered him from the shocks that he had experienced and help him analyze himself and undo the knots that had been created by the fights in his family and so on. But education was not meant to do that. It was meant to basically smooth out all the quirks in your personality so that you become a standardized part which will fit into the production machine. And so mm-hmm. that didn't work very well on him. Okay,
1: uh, what? Uh, at what point was the writing of your textbook fit into all this right, timeline? So
0: after I um, graduated from uh, Stanford, I did a postdoc year at Belgium uh, and then I uh, joined the University of Pennsylvania as an assistant professor. Actually, I, I just coincidentally,
1: I happened to work at uh, War- the Wharton School, uh, obviously long after you, but uh, I worked at the Wharton School for four years at the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Uh, yes. So that was from 1979 to about 1983. I was at UPenn and then I moved to Columbia University in New York. And that was um, about the time that I decided that I had some um, that I could write a textbook on econometrics, which would cover topics which were the uh, not available in the textbooks at that time. So I, I started writing that. One of the uh, it, it took me a lot of time. Um, yeah, I think about. Ten years at least, uh, and the most amazing thing that I learned from writing this book was how far removed theory is from practice. Because all my life, I had up till that book, I had um, studied only theoretical econometrics, and never studied how this is applied in the real world. And we were told that there is this distinction that there are some people who get their hands dirty with real numbers. And then there are the high priests, the theoreticians who only develop fancy, sophisticated, complex mathematical theories. And the, the ordinary laymen come to the hallowed halls and take these beautiful things that we discovered, that we developed. And they take these techniques and apply them. As our theoret- theoreticians, our job is not to see how this thing works in practice at all. This is the stupidest thing in the world. But this is the mindset and framework that was developed in me. In fact, I remember I went to my graduate student advisor, who was Larry Lau, a famous econometrician in Stanford. And I said, "Okay, I want to do my thesis in econometrics. And you're an econometrician. So tell me something about what I should do. So he told me that there are two types of econometricians. There are those who get their hands dirty with real um, data, and then then there are the more prestigious types. He mentioned Takeshi Amemiya, who was at Stanford at that time. That they only do theory; they never actually uh, study real data. And these are the ones who have prestige and status. So I said, why should I? Uh, why shouldn't I go for prestige and status? So I decided to do, and I did my uh, PhD thesis and a uh, theoretical problem, which much later I learned is completely useless completely meaningless it but, but you, while you were but while you were doing this
1: you yeah. you had already passed the point where you had a personal enlightenment like to I, I I'm it seems that you had already reached that point you said about five years after you came here which was still in the 70s right exactly you that realized had the that the my education-
0: Stanford University experience yes
1: right so you came to some personal realization that there was more to life and yet after you came to that personal realization then you spent 10 years writing a textbook which was based on completely flawed things
0: absolutely you see uh, like uh, i had been trained to think and this is what positive positive said that okay i have a personal life and these questions which were never addressed in our education these are what i came to realize that these are important questions and i, I had better learn how to uh, answer them and nobody else is going to do it for me but um, uh, there, there's a, a compartmentalization. This is my personal life, and then there's a professional life, which has uh, the standard uh, work. I didn't uh, at that point. I didn't come to disvalue or um, think that my education was unimportant. This was a much later realization. That is, when I became uh, went uh, through a personal crisis, I realized that I needed to learn more about life and living and being a human being, but I didn't think that this was the job of the people who were educating me as they claimed for themselves, only the job of providing me with the professional education and career. And uh, this, at, uh, at that point, I thought they had done a tremendous job. I didn't realize that these two different compartments of my life could actually overlap and intersect and, um, once I realized that this was the case, uh, that was much later, then I realized that the theory of personality, which is embodied in economics, is dead wrong. People are not what economic theory tells us that they are. And so this is the central flaw at the heart of economics. But at that point, I was not, uh, I didn't integrate these two things. I kept them as separate compartments. There's economic theory, which is based on math and models, and these are perfectly fine on their own. And then there's my personal life, which, uh, which is a mess. And uh, economics is not going to help me fix that.
1: So you were writing your textbook for 10 years. The, you finished your textbook. I assume you were proud of what you had written. And was it used? Was it was it was it how? What influence did that textbook have? And then when did you realize this is all a sham? This is all I wrote it really well on a seed that is (laughs) that on a seed that is completely flawed.
0: Yeah, the first um, yeah okay so that's right, Jenny. I was very proud of my textbook, and it did receive a lot of uh, uh, attention, nice reviews, and it was used. It was a very advanced textbook, so. I, I aimed to co- cover the most advanced topics. So it wasn't made into a routine textbook, but it was used as a reference in many courses and still is being used as a reference in in, in many courses over the world. But um, the f- uh, first inkling that I got of um, uh, any flaws in economics that I had been taught was came when I read Bayrock Paul Bairach has a book called uh, Myths and Paradoxes in Economics. And he uh, said, okay, economic theory says, so he has, he has a number of chapters in economic theory says X, but when we look at the real world, we find Y. And he just had a large number of such uh, examples. So I was very puzzled and surprised because In our courses, we had never um, actually received any training to match the theories that we were taught with uh, any reality at all. And uh, this seemed surprising to me. I assumed that somebody or, or, or the other must have done the job of verifying that our theories actually correspond to reality even though this was never taught to us in our courses. But that's also part of the theory application divide that since we were theorists, so we didn't study how these theories actually work in reality. And the applied scientists who are low prestige people who get their hands dirty with the real world and data, they would know how well our theories fare. And that was actually the division of labor we were taught that the that the real world people would take our theories and apply them and come back and report to us if there was something wrong with them. But actually this never happened. So Bayrock uh, gave me a whole list of historical examples of complete failure of economic theories. So I was very puzzled and I actually wrote to one of my Stanford professors saying that this is what we were taught in high school that if you have free trade, it is uh, optimal for both countries, but here Bayrock says that when England was industrially advanced and uh, it advocated free trade, uh, Germany fell into into depression and then um, they had their economists, whose name I'm forgetting right now, he was very famous at the time, and he said that, yes, this free trade is good between equals, but not between Mm -hmm. unequals. Mm -hmm. And so um, he argued that we should have protectionism. And when he imposed tariffs, then the economies of Europe's uh, recovered and uh, achieved industrialization. So this is exactly the opposite of what economic theory teaches us. So you said you wrote a letter about
1: to a professor about these concerns about what year are you talking about now?
0: This is around 1999, I think. Wow. Yeah, 98 or 99, yes. So you went around 30 years constantly teaching the wrong stuff. Absolutely. Without even having any any, uh, doubt in my mind that there was anything wrong with any of these theories. They developed. They develop from an axiomatic foundation and they start from zero and build up this magnificent structure without ever cross-checking it against uh, reality. Well, you know, this is is related to, I see this is related to individualism,
1: where you only care about yourself. You trust that everybody else takes care of themselves, which is so therefore you believe that your theoretical formulas are going to be checked by someone else, but no one checks in with anybody else. So it just keeps going on and on because everyone stays isolated, and no one checks if, you know, if things are
0: working at a, at a broader level. Now, I wouldn't relate it to individualism as much as the theory-practice divide, and also uh, logical positivism, which has a particular um, concept of what knowledge looks like. And this knowledge is not the type of knowledge that we learn by looking at history. You see, Logical positivism says that the model for knowledge is science. Science has to be universal laws. Universal laws have to hold uh, regardless of uh, time and place and geography. So when we studied the theory of trade, the theory of trade was an abstraction. It was a mathematical set of laws which would operate in Germany and in um, Brazil and in India equally. And they would operate in the 19th century and the 20th and the 21st equally because the law of gravity doesn't change. And similarly, the theory of trade should not, should be invariant because it has to be a scientific law. This was the claim of positivism. Now, the fact is that there is no such law. So there is a very nice book called How Economics Forgot History by Hodgson. And basically, we never studied any history because when you prove the Pythagorean theorem by setting up your axioms, you, you never go out and uh, draw a triangle to check if the theorem is true. No, because you have proven the theorem on logical grounds. Similarly, the theories that we studied were all proven on logical grounds and they were, they were perfect as theorems. Uh, And they they followed logically from the axioms. And there's no need to cross-check them with reality at all. This was not part of the methodology of economics. So this has to do with the models and reality business.
1: Okay, okay. Uh, About, uh, what year was your textbook published? That was in 96. 96? Yeah. 96, okay. And was the, uh, you said, that you started to question in 99. So there was, so it just suddenly, did it suddenly hit you in 99 that there was something no, wrong? No, actually what
0: happened it- was that in 93, I left America and I went to Turkey for six years from 93 to 99. And that was actually a crucial turning point in my life. If I had stayed in America, it's possible that I would have stayed blind forever. Because wow. the in the US academia, uh, there is no uh, the the the. In fact, uh, I was going to say there was there's no uh, there's no encouragement to question. But actually, uh, much worse is true. Those people who do anything any questioning of orthodoxy are very uh, brutally suppressed. So you learn quickly not to uh, raise doubts. Or um, and I saw several examples of pe- people being punished for. Uh, treading outside the boundaries of thought that are very carefully uh, circumscribed so being outside of the america the the control of the discipline is not so tight and when i was in bilkent university in uh, ankara uh, i was free to explore and also uh, one thing that i uh, realized that i needed to do was to N- not specialized to learn more about different things this was also another thing that in the us you are encouraged to specialize because you get more publications that way uh, if you if you dabble in other people's fields you you are a you are an amateur and you can't get high level so so the the, the more sharply focused you are on on the smallest piece of subject the more expertise you acquire in in your narrow nook and the the greater your um, academic career shines so this was not true when i uh, left the usa so being out outside the usa was a very important part of my intellectual development because okay. it allowed me to rise to read history to read about other fields which i hadn't studied in such great depth and to get a much broader perspective on economics Uh, to get uh, perspective on econometrics and the role it plays in economics and also economics and and the role it plays in human knowledge and so on.
1: Did the fact that Turkey is clearly, you know, at a disadvantage to the United States have any part of that?
0: Yeah, in some sense, I, I moved out of the USA for personal reasons, in the sense that I had two children who were growing up. And by that time, I was aware of the very corrosive uh, influence of uh, the culture. And uh, I didn't want my children exposed to this in grade school. I wanted them to live in a more uh, socially responsive environment. Hmm. And so um, when I left the USA, I made a conscious decision that, okay, now I'm abandoning the idea of... uh, Excellence in academia because I was in in uh, teaching in Ivy League schools and, and at the top, and and so uh, once you leave that, then then you leave. I mean, you can't get back on track. So I made a con i, I, I actually sacrificed my academic career. I Said, okay, I'll I'll settle for not having a stellar career. I'll just uh, uh, because some there are other priorities in life, and uh, so. I uh, did things which were, in my view and others, uh, suicidal for an academic career, stepped out of my discipline boundaries, studied philosophy and other things, which, history and which which were not supposed to be uh, part of my. So, going to Turkey in that sense was useful in the sense that that was already, yani, going there, I, I, I did not. I, I abandoned specialization and uh, theory, and I developed greater interest in local problems and e- e- real economy and other issues. So uh, that was a very important part of the, my intellectual development and social development as well.
1: That's great, um, and uh, you actually—I mean, this, this—you know—to—to to take you know, to do what is best for your children. You know to not allow them to be totally influenced by consumerism and, and individualism and whatever you know you took them out of the country and that's you know that's that's a very big gesture and I, I i like that we did something that obviously you know a pittance compared to that but in the same philosophy um we we i my wife and i personally decided we decided that we would not allow our children to watch anything on a video screen or an electronic screen for five years. That's a, so they did a, a
0: very impressive step and important.
1: Yeah, so that, I, I, can, I can definitely appreciate that. I wish we could have done more. That's great. Um, uh, if there's anything more that you feel needs to be said about that, please say it. But I would like to um, start to move on to how you eventually discovered, you know, now you have a realization that economics is is wrong, is, is fatally flawed. And so then you started looking into, uh, you know, when did you discover MMT? When did you discover what, what you would call Islamic uh, economics? And how do those two things relate to each other? But I'd like to move on to when you discovered what real economics really should be like.
0: Yeah, it's it was not that, the, there was no one point at which I had a sudden realization that a flash of insight Actually, slowly after I started Bayrock and I started studying uh, and then I got this response from my professor, which was from Stanford, which we never uh, mentioned, I I wrote to him. And his response was that, you know, our theory, what he shows is that when um, uh, Germany uh, set up tariff walls, their economy improved. So what our theory says is that free trade is best. It means that if the Germany had not thrown up tariff laws, their economy would have improved even further. So this kind of an argument is basically impervious to empirics and uh, it is always possible because you you are studying alternative timelines and you can't really um, say what would have happened. And so if you believe your theory to be 100% true because it's axiomatically a theorem, and that is what what it was, that his response made clear to me that uh, the theorists don't have an answer. They don't know the history. They're not interested in history. And the theories don't relate to history. And that that really made uh, clear to me that something is very seriously wrong. And then I started exploring more and more about problems, looking at some heterodox economists. I noticed that you mentioned Fred Lee, but I actually never got to Fred Lee. That was much, much later in my own journey. I, I, I went in different directions. But uh, slowly uh, problems and puzzles began to accumulate. And um, until it to a point where uh, I realized
1: Today I talk with Pakistani PhD economist Asad Zaman. Professor Zaman arrived in the United States in 1971 at the age of 16 to pursue a master's and then doctorate in economics and econometrics starting at MIT in Boston. Five years later, in addition to earning his doctorate, he realized his personal life was a mess poisoned by the individualism promoted by the West that says a primary goal in life is nothing more than to maximize one's own pleasure he worked through this crisis but it would take him another 25 years to realize have and finally resolve another major crisis in economics in 1996 Professor Zaman published a highly advanced textbook on econometrics after working on it for 10 years. The book received accolades and is still used as a reference in university classrooms around the world. One of the important things he realized while writing his textbook, however, was the vast gulf between those who get their hands dirty with real-world data and those who earn prestige and status by developing theory. Because the two sides never communicate, the theory becomes progressively more unrealistic. This is called the theory-practice divide. In fact, only a few years after being published, he realized that it, and indeed everything his entire academic career was based upon, was fatally flawed. Professor Zaman talks about the many incorrect and insidious concepts underlying mainstream economics, first and foremost being the idea of logical positivism, which he calls one of the most poisonous philosophies ever developed by human beings. Logical positivism says that if something cannot be externally observed and measured, it must be discarded, not just from economics but one's life in general. It means that our internal realities of thoughts, emotions, and spirituality are not important because they cannot obviously be witnessed or measured by others or with instruments. Here is a haunting quote from Professor Zaman's autobiography, which comes from the book Modernity and the Holocaust by Zygmunt Bauman. It was not illiterate savages, but graduates of the finest educational systems of the West who designed the gas chambers used to burn millions of innocent men, women, and children in Germany. The philosophies of logical positivism, combined with those of individualism and binary logic, the teachings of Kant and Hume and others, is substantially why man can do the evil that he does. We are taught that we must do what's best for us alone, We can only trust what can be reduced to maths and models, and we must also ignore our own inner emotions and spirituality. How could this lead to anything but disaster? We have cut ourselves off from the only signals that can truly guide us and know nothing about those who we harm, or that they even exist, at all. Most unfortunately, the deep flaws of mainstream economics are not accidental. They're in service of keeping the rich rich and the poor poor. Especially in the U.S., daring to challenge or question these things results in brutal suppression. Professor Zaman says he may never have realized these things had he not taken his family to Turkey for six years. Being out of the United States, especially in a less advanced and wealthy country, allowed him to study other subjects and schools of thought and also to take a look at the mainstream economics of the West from the outside. His life is now dedicated to educating others on real-world economics, which includes Islamic economics and MMT. Finally, in the show notes, you will find links to some of Professor Zaman's prolific body of work. This includes his 2020 paper on models as we discuss, his full video course on modern money theory, and his six-part series describing the economics of his home country and how MMT can apply to it. The MMT course has an hour-long segment on most of the chapters in the MMT textbook. This is part one of a two-part episode. Enjoy.